Welcome to AEC Marketing for Principals, brought to you by Smartages, where we help design and construction firms navigate sales and leverage marketing to win more projects. Here are your hosts, Katie Cash and Judy Sparks. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the AEC Marketing for Principals podcast. I'm your host, Katie Cash, and as always, I'm joined by my partner in strategy, Judy Sparks. Today, we have a great guest for you. He is the Director of Capital Improvements for one of the nation's largest urban school districts, and we are very excited to have Jerry Smith with us today so that we can go right to the source and better understand what he is looking for as an owner himself when he is meeting with and when he's interviewing professional service firms. We also want to ask him about how he goes about evaluating firms as part of the procurement and selection process at Atlantic Public Schools. So without further ado, Jerry, welcome to the show and thank you for spending your time with us so our listeners can get some tips on how to effectively pursue and more importantly, how they can win work with Atlanta Public Schools moving forward. Thank you for having me. Perfect. Um, Jerry, you know, we are very (coughs) familiar with Atlanta Public Schools, but you've been on the owner's side for a while. Why don't you share with our listeners a little bit about your background and exactly what you do in your role as the Director of Capital Improvements? Well, I have been with Atlanta Public Schools now for a little bit over 20 years. Um, I started out in the industry as an engineer, actually working for one of the large national uh, testing firms. Moved into what I would call traditional architecture field for a while. That's where my training is, um, undergraduate degree in architecture. And uh, practiced, I guess, retail uh, commercial architecture for almost 10 years. And then ended up getting involved uh, in the construction management side on the owner's end, Atlanta Public Schools, and have been here for quite a while now. So do you um, call working on the owner's side as going to the dark side, or is the dark side actually the professional service um, side of the business? What's your opinion on that? Um, I I like to... think that the owner side, the owners are where things happen. The owners generate projects. Um, the owners have the money. Um, it, it's where projects are generated. It's where ideas are generated. Now, obviously, we don't do this all ourselves. We have to have a, there's a lot of resources out there from the architecture, the idea side, the design side, uh, the execution side, the contractors, the engineers, and everything that make it all happen. Um but I kind of like to see my, my evolution is, is kind of an evolution going from where I went to the, to the owner's side. And that's probably where I'll be for Perfect. a while. So, you know, I would call you a prolific buyer of professional services. I seem to um, imagine your annual week, you know, everyday week, if you will, that you're either reviewing proposals or you're looking at scheduling interviews or you're trying to get your next RFP ready to publish because, you know, your school district is just so active. There's lots of new projects coming out of the ground. There's lots of renovations, summer modifications as, you know, we come up on the, the summer season. So to paint a picture for our listeners, can you talk a little bit about the size of the capital program you're overseeing at Atlanta Public Schools? Um, in big picture numbers, we run about $100 million a year, um, and that's generally made up of, say, six to eight to maybe 10 major projects. That's, say, $10 million and up, and then we have dozens of other smaller projects, roofing replacements, HVAC upgrades, uh, other type of system upgrades or building reconfigurations. Uh, we do a lot of moving and relocation and consolidation, so we handle all that. 
but but in total it runs i would say on average about a hundred million dollars a year so jerry are you saying that your full-time job is not uh reading proposals and evaluating firms that you actually have other responsibilities <laughs> that that's true <laughs> but, but again we can't all i have is a computer uh, a legal pad and some pens and pencils so it, it takes a lot of support to get done what we do and it's it's the the uh you know the private consultants the private contractors uh that we count on to get done what we get done absolutely and so picking the right partner is probably the most important thing you'll do in your procurement process because um, if you don't pick the right partner, then all of those other things that have to come together become even more challenging, I would imagine. That's true. So um, we, we get pretty involved when we pick someone for a project. A lot of the owners that we have spoken with in the past, especially on the public sector side, seem to have a fairly... Um, I don't want to call it rigid, but a fairly standard procurement process that outlines, you know, what what you're looking for in terms of service provider, how you're going to evaluate those individuals, and ultimately how you come to your decision on selecting those firms. Can you walk us through what the process is that you use? Sure. Um, we're pretty fortunate in that we have a, a procurement side of the house uh, down at the main office for a lack of a better term, but we're, our program is kind of so robust and so dynamic, we're allowed to manage our own procurement piece, you know, under oversight and with certain regulations. But um, for the most part, we work off of what I call pre-qualified pools. So everything from architecture to water treatment, uh, A to W, I can't think of Z, but um, we will go out and qualify every say three to four to five years, a group of firms to provide those services. And when a project comes up, once we qualify that pool, we go out to that pool knowing that we've already kind of vetted these firms um, for a specific proposal for a specific project. So Jerry, it's really interesting. Katie and I, we talk about how the competitive landscape in the design and construction industry has changed quite a bit um, over the course of our careers. And it, there was a time where firms really believed that relationships were at the you know cornerstone, the hallmark of every job. And we do think that relationships are so important, but just like you said, you have this pool of pre-qualified providers. So, you know, I'm assuming everybody is qualified to do the work. And because you have pre-qualified a select group of providers, they all know you. So how does a firm really stand out when they're competing for your work if they all have a relationship with you and that they're all, you know, qualified to do the work? What what are some of those effective things that firms do to stand out on a particular pursuit? Well, I, I think you kind of hit on it when you mentioned they know you. Um, it, and it becomes evident over time, but some firms spend a lot of effort and time to know you, to know I'm going to speak specifically to APS because that's what I know. They go the extra mile in trying to figure out what APS is and what we do. And then on a project level, they kind of try to go out there and figure out what that individual project is all about. And the firms that do that, and you can tell they spend a little extra time and effort doing it, they're the ones that seem to be a little bit more successful. Um, they just have a little more grasp of what's going on, and that comes through in their in their proposal, it comes through in their correspondence, it just comes through in their, their you know, day-to-day -day conversation. So you get to feeling a lot more comfortable with them over somebody else that may be just as well qualified, 
but uh, you know, this firm seems to know a little bit more about you and you're a little more comfortable with them. Is there a particular way that these firms are um, showcasing that type of investment, either in the relationship building or investment in the knowledge of the project, be it through the proposal or the interview that, that you've seen that really helps you kind of think through, yeah, I really do want to work with these guys. You know, I, I trust them. You know, they're clearly competent. They've thought through this. Is there, you know, a particular tactic, I guess, that you've seen that, that really helps move the needle? It's, it's not so much a tactic. It's kind of in a, um, just a way they a, a attack a proposal, for lack of a better term. You know, our, our RFPs are very specific. We, we ask you to answer some very specific questions and you have to check all of the box. And, and you do need to do that. Some firms, I would say, spend the majority of their effort in checking those boxes. And that's, that's great. They have to do that. But they tend not to focus so much on the specific project, the specific nuances of APS, and the things that kind of make them stand out above somebody else. And I've kind of come to kind of see it in terms of a split. When you're making a proposal, yes, you have to check all those boxes and have to meet all the requirements of proposal. But I would spend roughly, say, a third of my efforts in doing that. And then two thirds of my efforts in elaborating on how I'm the best fit for this project, how I know this project, how I know you and your needs. Um, now, that's not absolute, the one third, two thirds split, but it, it, I would say it's at least a 50 50 split on, you know, answering the book answers versus how are you the best fit for the project? You know, Jerry, that's very interesting. We spend a lot of time at our firm helping companies prepare their proposals. And you're right, they are very focused on answering the question. Um, and they're very focused on providing information um, in response to those questions. But I bet that with the number of proposals that you read, you can sort of spot boilerplate from a mile away. And so what we spend a lot of time doing is coaching our customer that you can't just put the guy's resume in there, you need to you need to put the guy's resume in there and tell tell the owner why this particular person is a good fit for this particular job. Would you concur with that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I hate to single out large kind of national or international firms, but they often seem to spend a lot of time on telling us who they are, what they've done, all the other clients they've worked on with. And not that that's not important, but they wouldn't even be proposing on one of our projects unless we knew that they had those kind of resources or background. So again, I would just say, yeah, talk about it, discuss it, but it shouldn't be the focus of your proposal. And, and I hate to say it, but it almost seems like it's coming from corporate marketing that this is what we say on every proposal. And again, I, I almost hate to see it because it's almost like you're I hate to say, wasting your time but you're telling me what I already know about you. Right. And so we always say, you know, try to make it interesting for the reader. <laughs> so yeah. I think that uh, a lot of firms spend time telling the story they want to tell mm -hmm. without a lot of consideration of, you know, what does my reader um, want to know? Yeah, it's, it's a careful balance about, you know, being professional and showing your history and who you really are versus kind of getting into the more soft and squishy part of, how am I, how, how can we have a relationship on this project going forward? So 
you know, I think that that that's all really helpful, you know, thinking through the project and helping to connect the dots on why the individuals or why the firm is, is um, you know, the ideal candidate ultimately for your projects is great. What what would be helpful is sometimes it's even more helpful to better understand what are the common mistakes that people make. So Judy touched a little bit about going in with, with boilerplate responses, but what are some of the other common mistakes that firms make, Jerry, when they're pursuing your work? Um, what's even worse is the boilerplate stuff that you can kind of spot them all the way and, and that you do have to somehow present the boilerplate stuff, but oftentimes it's repeated more than once, twice and three times, which kind of makes it even, you know, doubles down and makes it even worse. Um, if you're going to do it, just be careful. And, you know, it's like a, it's like salt. You want some salt, but you don't want too much. Um, the other thing is, are just common things like numbering pages, um, using another school district's name somehow. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I hate that. It, it happens. Um, trying to get too wordy with your proposal. Um, keep it simple. Um, you know, Jerry, one of my favorite stories I remember you telling at an, at an industry event is that you have a full-time job and it is not proposal reader. And so, you know, you broke it down uh, for me uh, in a really clear way that I'll never forget. You, you said, you know, when you take an eight-hour day and you take your operational responsibilities and your HR responsibilities and all of the things that fall under your purview and your department, and then you take out, you know, some time for lunch and those kinds of things, um, you, you know, you boil it down to, you know, this is the number of proposals and this is how much time in my day that I have to review them. So I think you told me once you have about 12 to 15 minutes per proposal to really get through and understand what, you know, what the firm is saying. And I, that's always stuck with me. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Because I think that you probably get a lot of proposals that have a lot of words and you probably, I'm guessing, appreciate it when there's some concise and brevity to the answers. <laughs> right. Um, I, and I remember that conversation you and I had. I mean, let's say I have 15 to 16 to 18 proposals to get done basically today or say by tomorrow. And you say, well, I'm going to spend, you know, 10 minutes a piece or 15 minutes a piece on them. You're talking about that's, you know, three to four to five hours just of reading if you're going right. to read them all. So the reality of that happening is that that may get paired, that 15 minutes may get paired down to six to eight to 10 minutes of reading and another three to four minutes of actually evaluating and putting down a score for that proposal. So I think putting people putting proposals together should should really think about it in those terms. And you can sit back and say, well, it really shouldn't be that way. This is, you know, all my effort that I'm putting into this. You should really sit down and spend, you know, whatever time it takes to review it. But just the reality of it is it's probably not going to happen. So I think that the 10 to 15 minute rule is pretty good. It's a pretty good guideline, unless you're told differently in the RFP, obviously. Right, right. So Katie, um, I know that you and I have been preaching this to our, our clients and can you shed some light on, you know, I think Jerry said something pretty profound in that there is a lot of energy that gets put into these books and, and um you know, the cost of client acquisition is we, we talk about that a lot in our podcast and we talk about it a lot in our consulting practice. 
that firms need to be really strategic about how they spend their marketing dollars and their marketing time. So can you just shed some light on when you're working with clients on the procurement uh, side of things and helping them prepare their their proposals or you're coaching them for interviews, um, some of the challenges that firms have with being concise and to the point? You know, I think um, based on my experience, there's, there's different types of uh, common challenges. One is you have firms that have business developers that have been nurturing the relationship for months or in some cases years, and they feel like, you know, this is, this is theirs to win, right? I hear that all the time. This is ours to win, guys. We got to put in a great proposal or presentation. And they really want to narrate the client journey from the first time they met to, you know, leading up to this project to just reiterate how invested they have been and their firm has been in that particular client organization and into this particular project at hand. So we see a lot of, you know, storytelling and timelines and, and things like that that come into play. I also have other clients that just feel like they need to really go the extra mile at connecting the dots for the readers in terms of why this person is the right superintendent or the right designer or why this particular project I'm using in my experience um, is exactly like yours, even though it, there may not be very much um, that's exactly similar. But they they feel this need to kind of put everything on the page so that it will stand up in court. And so that, you know, when the open records happen that everybody understands exactly why they might have been selected. So they really over communicate. And in the process of doing that, I find that oftentimes our clients are diluting their message and it's getting lost because, you know, one, Jerry doesn't have time to read 50 pages, especially when you could answer it in five. And then the second part of it is like you mentioned too, Jerry, we're, we're repeating some of the information over and over again. And Sometimes it, it is the way the RFPs are written, though. I'll play a little bit of devil's advocate. There's plenty of times I've read RFPs, not necessarily from APS, but from other owners where they ask the same question in three different sections and you don't want to be non-compliant. So you answer it three different <laughs> times because you certainly don't want to disrupt the the reader's experience and say, refer to page 12 three times. Um, so those are just some of the common challenges that I've seen. And then what we've been seeing more and more often is this desire to, you know, have their proposals, quote unquote, stand out in the pile. So they need to do something very custom or um, they feel like they need to do something that that deliberately speaks to that particular client. And I think the most common no, no, that we see clients try to do is they abandon their own brand and adopt the brand of the client organization. Um, so say that their color scheme was red and black, but they were proposing to, you know, Georgia Tech, who's black and yellow and their, you know, immediate competitor at UGA is black and red. They, they get rid of their brand colors and they, they do everything in the client colors. And I don't know if, if that's, you know, rubs you the wrong way, Jerry, or not. But we, we see a lot of clients trying to do that just to try to overemphasize how much they care and how much they've taken into account the client organization in which they're proposing to. Right. And so, something just clicked as you were talking. We see some people, and, and we still do paper proposals, um, they try to get either real unique with the binding or either real unique with the paper size. We'll do a, a, a landscaped 11 by 17 proposal 
And and we don't preclude, you know, I guess we could preclude that by saying it must be, you know, eight and a half by 11 portrait. But um, we see a lot of people do that. And I don't want to say it, it, it does make the proposal stand out because often it falls out of a pile. Um, <laughs> maybe not for the right intention. Yeah, <laughs> it generally doesn't get them anything. So I would kind of maybe advise against that. Um, do And I guess, you know, paper proposals may go away in the future, but at least for right now, they're still here. Think about your binding and think about how a book will weigh on a table. Um, cause you might open two or three at one time and, you know, ideally you want it to lay flat where the person can read it. I mean, these are just very simple, basic things, but they do come into play sometime. You know, you know Jerry, it's interesting to hear your perspective on, um, just the mechanics of how you put your proposal together. You really should be thoughtful of your audience and the reader. And, um, you know, we see a lot of firms spend a lot of energy on how can I stand out? How can I be different? And what I hear you saying is, you know, at the end of the day, it really does still come back to how are you going to design my project? How are you going to build my job? And how are you going to do it better than your competitor? And how you bind your proposal really doesn't have a material effect. Is that is that what I'm hearing from you? Right. You, you don't want your obviously your binding or your orientation or configuration to detract from your proposal. Um, but, yeah, I. I I think, you know, firms should, they should stand on their own. They should promote who they are. Uh, we know who APS is. So you put the APS logo on it. That's, that's great, but you don't need to, you sure don't need to go overboard or change, change yourself to become us. Um, we know you're not us. We're looking for somebody to do a job for us. That's right. And, and then there's other times where, you know, the psychology that goes into and the evaluation of decisions when proposing, you know, I've heard clients say, well, you know, this, this owner, he has a military background. He spent 30 years in the Navy before coming to this organization. So, you know, we're going to propose a project manager that has a similar background. I have to ask you, Jerry, does that matter? Well, and I can't speak for other people and it may, um, I think you do need to kind of be careful and not overthink things in this proposal environment. Right. Uh, the whole kind of, you know, keep it simple, answer the questions, try to show, you know, show your best side, show your how, how you're the best fit for this, you know, organization. Um, you know, if you're proposing to a guy from the Navy, maybe I wouldn't emphasize that the superintendent was an army guy. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hide it, but you know, I don't know that I'd emphasize it because Army and Navy seem to not get along when it comes to football and other things. But, um, <laughs> I, I, you might, they might be getting into overthinking things when you get into that level of minutia. I think that that is absolutely accurate. We we see it all the time with clients, and I think that you know the intent of the overthinking, um, this you know paralysis by analysis that we we observe in our clients uh, quite a bit, it's really coming from a place of just really wanting to win mm -hmm. and having so much invested in the cause of, you know, of the project that they're going after. But I do think that sometimes um, you can go down the wrong rabbit hole pretty quickly and forget that really your audience just wants to be convinced that they can trust that you're going to deliver what they need. And you're spending millions and millions of dollars and, um, the most important thing that we tell our clients that they need to do is to leave that one hour interview or 30 minute interview convincing you, Jerry, that you can, you know, 
contract with them for a $30 million project and be confident that they're going to deliver what they promised. And, and so they need to put a lot of emphasis on how they're going to design the project or how they're going to build the project. And that's where their time is really well spent. Um, would you agree with that versus all of the gimmicks and flashy, yeah. I, I guess, tactics that, that firms take? Right. I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and I kind of re see it every now and then, not, not often, but, you know, most firms we deal with have been in business, say 10, 20, 30, maybe even six, you know, it's a family business, 60, 70 years. You're not going to change for us. Sh show us who you are. Right. Um, show us how, again, how you're the best fit, how your people are the best fit, how you know the most about this project. Don't try to change or adapt for us. It, it, you know, it's, it kind of comes out as, at some point is, is a little bit fake. So I sure just, I wouldn't invest a whole lot of time, if any, in doing something like that. You, you are who you are after 30 years in business. Absolutely. You're at, you are who you are after a year in business. <laughs> so, um, so Jerry, I want to talk a little bit more about the interview because what's really interesting is um, time and time again, the industry, the design and construction industry, and you are probably aware, well aware of this. Um, it is a just a hotbed for industry rumor mill, and so I cannot tell you how many times we go into a project and we hear, "Oh, you know, this is the this is the team to beat," or "They're the best," you know, aligned for this project, or the owner wants this firm. Um, I like to believe that most of the time when you get to the short list that it's anyone's job to win. And too many times I see the firm going into an interview saying, you know, this is our job to lose. And they do in fact lose it in the interview because they haven't put enough energy into the interview. Other times I have firms that say that, you know, we're the underdog. They're, they just have us at the table for a pricing exercise. Um, but then they end up winning the job. So is it true that, when you get to a short list, you know, the, that you really need to believe that it's anyone's project and um, you can win it or lose it in the interview. I, I mean, I certainly think so. And I think we kind of go above and beyond to make sure that, you know, you don't come into an interview kind of, I mean, you may have your own opinions as a, as a, you know, vendor or contractor who you think is going to get it. But I would sure hope if you're come, if you're that seasoned and that far along and that advantage, you, you walk into a room thinking that it's your job, not overconfident or anything, but that you can certainly get it. And, and again, we try, try to go above and beyond not trying to put out any preconceived notions of who's going to be the winner of this or not. You know, How it, often are you surprised? How often are you surprised coming off of the uh, shortlist evaluation and then, you know, having an inclination of, of which firm is going to fare better in the interview and then you're surprised in the interview which one actually does? I would almost say 50%. Wow. Not like a preconceived notion, but you have an idea of who's kind of the strongest. Right. You go in there and your, your mind, I don't want to say it's changed, but it's convinced in another direction. Um, so that interview is very important. And can you tell when some firms are more prepared than others in an interview? Can you tell which ones are well rehearsed and which ones are winging it? <laughs> Um, yeah, you, you can, you can, um, and you can kind of tell sometimes that some of the team members are, are well-versed and 
some of them not so much. I guess they've been grabbed on the way out of the office and say, hey, you need to come to this. Um, you know, I would counsel folks and say, if, if you're going to bring someone to the meeting, ha have them um, to be a part of it. Um, a lot of times I've seen people come and somebody attends and I go, well, why are they really here? Um, if they're going to be there, make them be a piece of the meeting. Um, you don't have to bring everybody. I hate to throw out a number because it kind of depends on the project, but you know, don't bring more than 10 people. I wouldn't even bring more than say seven people. Um, but make sure those people all have a role in what you're doing. And, and the other thing I kind of see is make sure there's an essentially an MC or a spokesman for your group. Sometimes you can't really tell, you know, everybody's got a part of it. So, but nobody's the real closer, I guess. I, you know, um, I, I think that's real important to have a closer. I think everything you're saying is really helpful, Jerry. You know, we, we work with a lot of firms and there's always this challenge of trying to decide, you know, who goes to the interview. And what I see happen with a lot of firms is, you know, they're trying to figure out if they just send the tactical um, project team, you know, the ones that are actually going to be billable and on the project. Do they add a layer of leadership to show the level of corporate commitment to the project? Do they bring in the salesperson that kind of has nurtured the relationship the whole time? Do they bring a marketing person, um, you know, to help run technology? And then, you know, we always have this, especially on the architectural selection, where they should they bring all their engineers just in case some Q&A comes up and they get stumped. So do you have any recommendations there in terms of should you bring just the core project team? Do you, is leadership really necessary? Do you need to have a whole host of all your consultants represented? And I know it kind of depends on the project, but just generally speaking. Right. I mean, I've, I've seen it work different ways. And I'm going to jump to the first thing you mentioned about the engineers and consultants. Um, Unless there's something really unique about it, like a real structural situation or a real site development situation, I would probably say no, because um, I just don't see the folks. I'm speaking of an architectural presentation. I, I don't see those folks bringing a lot to that interview unless there's some very specific uh, challenge to be overcome in some discipline. Um, I think you do need to bring somebody pretty high up in the organization at least we kind of like to see that to kind of act as the MC almost of that of father or the mother of the event. Um, I think that comes off very well. Um, but again, I don't know that I would just bring everybody on the project team. Uh, obviously, maybe the project manager or whatever the you know the firm calls that person, project leader. Um, maybe you know one person down under the, under that person. Uh, but I wouldn't go much further than that. Okay. Um, I think having someone you mentioned, you touched on something about technology. I think it helps out often if there is a person and it may just be very simple of kind of handling the logistics of who sits where and, and, and you know, the technology itself or the handouts, somebody that's not really part of the proposal handling that piece of it. Okay. The um, one thing, and this is kind of, again, more specific to architectural interviews, um, a number of our, our architectural clients will decide to bring some of their engineers with them. But what we find more often than not is, you know, these engineering consultants or specialty consultants are often on more than one team. So what is it like on the owner's side where maybe you see a mechanical engineer come in with two or three firms? Like what, what does that do in terms of the, the conversation or the perception? Does it level the playing field? Does it 
Does it seem unfair? Do you have any any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, yeah I can, I've had that happen. And the only <laughs> word that comes to my mind is odd. Okay. <laughs> you have a person in an interview and they walk out and they may in the very next interview come in again, or it may be an hour later in a subsequent interview when they come in. Do they try to disguise themselves and, you know, change a tie or anything like that? <laughs> no, no, they really don't. So that kind of goes back to my first, or goes back to just a minute ago, unless there's a very specific reason to bring them, you know, condition, um, I just wouldn't do it. Or, or you just feel that you really need to bring your mechanical engineer for some reason. Um, I just don't, I think the the downside outweighs the benefits in general. So we've been talking a lot about the design side. I just want to take a minute and talk about the construction side. Um, I am seeing more and more public entities, K-12 school districts, colleges and universities uh, using um, CM at risk and design build as delivery methods. And so the CMs are also interviewing. And I was just curious, Jerry, um, we are seeing a lot of uh, work in terms of talking about a project on the CM side. Everything from 3D animated site plans to um, regenerated BIM models to, you know, all of the technology that firms are using in the field. How important is that in an interview that, you know, if one contractor comes in um, a little bit old school, maybe they've got some boards, they've got uh, PowerPoint and they're just, you know, it's a two, two dimensional flat image of, you know, here's where our site fencing goes. Here is where deliveries happen. Here are, you know, the things that we're worried about in terms of your site. Maybe there's some wetlands versus a firm that comes in that has a lot of enhanced technology to tell the same story. Um, I, I gotta say, if you do it right, the technology does catch your attention. Um, I think, you know, a fly through, for lack of a better description of a project that a contractor's, you know, um, kind of assembled, uh, you know, an animation of a project being constructed and then you kind of do a fly through of it. Uh, it, it does go a long way sometimes. Now, obviously, the, you know, some things that can go wrong there. Um, and if you can't do it, I don't know that I, you don't have that technology. I wouldn't let that stop me. Um, but we've seen some firms really kind of stand out in doing that, um, you know, you, you don't want to make it like a, a two hour movie or anything, but just a little video of the site and how it's, you know, goes from a green field or an old building being demolished to be a new building being constructed. Um, that catches people's attention. And I would imagine it's really helpful for the non-technical members of your selection committee, because not everybody has your background um, that's on the committee. Sometimes these are educators or principals or, um, you know, others that are, you know, have a vested interest in the project, but maybe not technically trained. Yeah, that, that's I was going to kind of expand and go into that. I mean, oftentimes in our um, interview committees, we have people that are not technical. Um, they're part of the educational side of the house. And, you know, <laughs> I don't want to take this the wrong way, but something like that, you know, they're not that familiar with the process. They're not that familiar with the firms. Um, some sort of animation or other image uh, like that or some kind of technology that kind of shows the project can go a long way with, the, you know, those folks. Absolutely. Well, the other um aspect that contractors are often faced with is 
questioning whether or not, um, especially with public clients, there's a spread the work mentality. And I don't know um, so much of whether or not they're thinking that it's a political consideration more so than a capacity consideration. So talk to me about if you have a pool of contractors, um, how much does it weigh into your decision considering what you've awarded to that firm already? Um, you know, we will award back-to-back projects to the same firm. It, it does happen when I say back-to-back. You, you do uh, award a project, you know, one, month one and say three months later or four months later, you end up awarding another project to the same firm. You know, all our projects stand alone. We don't really preclude, um, you know, if you've got a job from you getting another job. I think sometimes the market weeds that out because those firms that tend to get one or, you know, have maybe two jobs going and are working on a third, they don't submit on the fourth, so they're not there. So we don't generally have a problem with, you know, one person getting all the work, um, and but we don't actively go out and look to spread it out among multiple firms. It just kind of ha- happens by, uh, it's organic. Well, that's really great to hear because we cannot tell you how many times we're, you know, at the table, the, our client has been shortlisted and, and you know, they really don't like to rehearse. I have to tell you, <laughs> they really would rather have a you know a dentist appointment than than rehearse for an interview. But um, but they know they need to do it because most of them did not go to school for public speaking, and so um, a lot of that time that we should be rehearsing and thinking about the project um, is spent debating whether or not they even have a chance of winning um, because they had just won the last one. And um, what I always tell them is, you know, you wouldn't be on the shortlist if they didn't intend. Uh, for the possibility of awarding this job to you. And it's really refreshing to hear you uh, validate that for us. So thank you for that. Um, Jared, do you have any open-ended um, advice to firms uh, competing for work at Atlanta Public Schools? Um, maybe you could give us some insight on, um, you mentioned that every so often, every few years, you you do a pre-qualified uh, list. What is the timing of that? Um, how does, if somebody wanted to uh, call on you for the first time, how would they go about doing that? Could you give our listeners just a little bit of insight on specific to your organization, the best practices? Right. Um, can't talk a whole lot about it right now because we're in the middle of it, but we oh. are. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> two, two of our biggest, um, I would call them biggest selections, I guess. We're requalifying a pool of architects at this time and we're requalifying a pool of uh, construction management firms that'll be working with us for the next you know three to four to five years um we try not to do a lot of talking with firms you know during that period of time um but the thing is we may be working with those same firm firms on an active project now so it, it gets very tough um but we have a real open door policy here. I mean, I talked to a lot of people about how to do business with APS and you may not, you may have missed this qualification, but it's coming up in another year. It's coming up in another two years. Um, so we spend a lot of time, or I think we do spend a lot of time trying to groom um, our resources. Um, we, we want people to want to work for APS because um, again, we, we can't get anything done our own. We, we need them. We, we want to be the place that they want to propose and that they want to work. Um, and I think there may be some other owners that it's contrary to that. Uh, people may be a little reluctant to p- propose here or there because of one reason or another. 
Um, I do think that you guys have done a really good job being a good client. And so, you know, we hear lots of firms from engineering, architecture, and construction wanting to be on that pre-qualified list. So for all of our listeners out there, just know that you might be missing the chance this year, but that there are always opportunities to get on the subsequent lists year after year. Um, Jerry, we really do want to thank you for your time to be on our show. We know you've got a, a full day job and I'm sure that your emails and your phone calls are piling up, but we appreciate your time and your, your thoughtful answers today. And to any of our listeners out there, if you want some more insight on, you know, Jerry's opinion, as well as some of other opinions from his peer group, Smartogies does have a published owner survey that you can get on our website at smartogies.com. And yes, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-G-I-E-S.com. Um, we do like to do firsthand research and get it straight from the mouth of the owner in terms of their sales and marketing preferences, just like we got from Jerry today. So again, thank you for your time. And Jerry, if you want to tell anybody how they might best reach out to you, um, if they were looking to, you know, follow up on some ways that they could get on that list for next year, feel free to, to share that information with them. Okay. We have a, a pretty robust website. So you could, uh, you know, Google Atlanta Public Schools Capital Improvement Program and kind of scan through that if you'd like, or you're welcome to reach out to me and uh, email me directly. Um, it's J-E-R-S-M-I-T-H. That's J-E-R-S-M-I-T-H at atlanta.k12.ga.us. Great. Well, thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed today's episode and have a great week. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to AEC Marketing for Principals, brought to you by Smartergies. If you like this episode, please let us know by visiting AECMarketingPodcast.com, where you can learn more ways to position your brand and sell to owners. 